Good morning. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Um, glad to see a number of the uh, college students starting to uh, trickle their way back in, and a few parents. Welcome to you. Um, as I was uh, just thinking, obviously it's fairly full. You might expect it's probably going to get fuller uh, in the next few weeks as more and more college students start to come back. Um, so all that to say is you're going to get to know each other better. If you used to have a row to yourself, those days are over. Um, if it looks like it seats three or four, it probably is going to have to seat three or four. So you're going to have to scoot in at times from the edges and um, kind of just get a little bit close. There's also an overflow room in the back. I saw some folks walk in, and I think they went around to use that. Um, we'd love to have you in this room if you can, but I mean, we may have to use that at some point. So just be, uh, be mindful of that and uh, try to try to uh, make sure there's room for people. Um, also, we use bulletins around here a lot because um, they have uh, some of the hymns that we use are printed in there. So if you're new, you really need to have one of those every time you walk in. If you see somebody sitting next to you that doesn't have one, then share if you can do that, uh, just so people have the, the words in front of us, uh, in front of them. A couple arrivals, uh, obviously this week, uh, Adam and Abby welcomed Wesley Dean Nesmith to uh, their family, so we're thankful for that. I see, I see um, Grandma and Grandpa, and we're excited for you guys, because I, I don't know, was this number one, or... All right, that's what I thought, right? Number one for you, I should know that. Um, but because uh, we just uh, had ours uh, back in January, our first one, so we're, we're thankful for that too. Um, we have been uh, traveling warriors. We've been gone for a couple of weeks, and so um, uh, I'm thankful for the men who filled in for me. Uh, Bob and Kevin and Jason filled in for me uh, when we were gone the first time to Little Rock. Some of you know this, some of you don't. Uh, but my son and his wife's house didn't close, and that's why we went down there the first time. And so we actually made another trip back this week. And so we got in late last night. If I pause for an extended prayer, a time of prayer, and don't ever come back up, um, it's because uh, I'm tired. And um, so but we're thankful for the opportunity to, to help them. Uh, our dear friend Jenny Meyer is here uh, with us, uh, our missionary in Tamboth, um, visiting family. So if you get a chance to, to welcome her. Um, and I think that's it. I have, I have scribbled notes here that I can't read, and that's why I've gone to printing everything with the computer because I can't uh, read my own handwriting. All right, I think that's it. Appreciate the guys again who filled in for me, and I uh, appreciate the fact that you're here to hear from the word of the Lord. And so let's do that. Open to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Verse 25 is where we find ourselves this morning. And the text says this, John 7, verse 25. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look, he is speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but wherever the Christ may come, no one may know where he's from, or no one knows where he's from. Jesus, therefore, cried up in the temple, teaching and saying, you both, know where I, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the multitude believed in him. 
And they were saying, When the Christ shall come, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the multitudes muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. And Jesus therefore said, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me, and you shall seek me and shall not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews therefore said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, You shall seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, again, we're thankful for the opportunity uh, to meet together. We're thankful for your word, and we do pray, Lord, that you'd open our minds, uh, uh, our our spiritual eyes, to see the truth that you have uh, set for us in this portion of Scripture that's so very important. Help us to listen with clarity and and to make decisions that... uh, uh, will honor you and decisions that will uh, seal positively our eternal destination. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, somebody mentioned to me, because I often mention this to uh, uh, the men in, this, in, in the men's Bible study, somebody mentioned to me this morning, how was your week with dead people? And because um, I, I say I spend most of my time with dead people, I'm with guys, guys long past that are living in books, and, and I, I listen to them, and they teach, and, and it's exciting. And so it's a continual joy for me to have the privilege to study the, the Gospel of John here and then uh, to teach uh, every Sunday morning. And I hope it's a joy for you, too. What a, what a great privilege we have in God and His kindness to giving us so many men who've gone before us to study and to encourage our hearts and to open the truth to us so that we can see more clearly the most wonderful person who's ever walked the planet. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ. The most gracious, wonderful person who's ever walked the planet. And this book is all about him. Every page is about him. Almost every verse is about him. In fact, the author of the book, the gospel, uh, John, the writer, pens these words, he says, so that we might know who Jesus really is. He writes, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, John 20 and 31. So in order to have eternal life, you have to have, you must have a biblical understanding of and a belief in the person of Jesus Christ. You have to correctly, accurately, and again, biblically understand who Jesus is and why he has come into the world. And the sad truth, there are many people who are unnecessarily uh, confused over uh, his true identity and and unnecessarily confused over his uh, reason for coming. And again, I've told you repeatedly throughout this series that your eternal destiny uh, depends on your believing the truth about him. And that understanding only comes by you humbling yourself under the word of God and willingly and desiringly wanting to know God's truth, to listen to, and then to obey God's voice. But again, sadly, most people are unwilling to do that. In the beginning of the book, John, the writer, the author, says this, John 1 and 10, he says, he, speaking of Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. And he came into his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So the truth is, Christ is in the world, and many people don't know him. Many people don't want to know him. So John, throughout his gospel, puts forth, as one writer put it, both the tragedy of unbelief along with the triumphs of belief, and he puts those truths side by side throughout the book. In the context of our study, in John 7, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of the three great uh, Jewish feasts on the or calendar, uh, three great Jewish feasts on the annual calendar that was celebrated by everyone. 
uh, the, the Feast of Booth remembered the wilderness wanderings of Israel uh, when they were staying in tents, those 40 years when they were wandering uh, in the desert before they entered the Promised Land, having been delivered uh, from uh, Egypt by God himself. So, uh, again, like other major feasts in the Jewish calendar, uh, the city of Jerusalem and the celebration is filled with thousands upon thousands of individuals, perhaps even tens to hundreds of thousands of people who travel from all over the region, uh, the land of Israel, and they've come together to join in the feast here in Jerusalem. At the same time where this feast is going on, we're six months before Jesus is going to be arrested and crucified. And as I told you in the story here, as it's unfolding, there's an increasing hostility towards the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus shows up to this feast halfway through. At midweek, he arrives in Jerusalem because the religious leaders are seeking to kill him. Right? The, the people are debating over who he is, and the religious leaders are seeking to kill him. Look at verse uh, 12. It says, There was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying no. On the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. But again, John is writing for the express purpose that we would understand who he is, and he's writing for the express purpose that we would understand that neither of these options that the multitude are debating are viable. Jesus is not just a good man. Jesus could not just be a good man only because the things he said of himself make that an utter, an utter impossibility. The fact that Jesus said he came down from heaven, the fact that Jesus said he was eternal, the fact that Jesus said that he was sent into the world by the Father, the fact that he said he was the only Savior of the world, the fact that he said he's the one who determines eternal, uh, people's eternal destiny, the fact that he said he's the one who has the right to, to, to be worshipped and honored as an equal basis or on an equal basis with the Eternal Father, the one who claimed that he had the source of living water, that he could give living water, that those who would drink of it would live forever and never die. The fact that he claimed to be uh, the bread of life, who again, who ate of him would never hunger and have eternal life. A mere man can't just say that things, those things and be a good man unless they're what? True, right? So, so Jesus is somebody other than just a mere man. Jesus actually claimed that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one could go to the Father but through him, John 14, 6. And that's an exclusive claim. <clears throat> Immediately with those words, Jesus just finally forever shuts the door to every other and all other worldly religious systems. Jesus, again, has claimed, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus has just claimed that access to the Father comes only through him. <clears throat> Which means you'll never enter into the presence of the Father through Allah. You'll never get into heaven by your own works, by your own effort. You'll never get into heaven by the Jesus of the Roman Catholic Church, nor through Mary. You'll never get into heaven by the Jesus of the Mormon Church or the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Salvation is found, entrance into heaven <coughs> is found only through the biblical Jesus Christ. And that's a claim that he repeatedly made over and over again. So no doubt Jesus was a good man, but just believing in Jesus as a good man doesn't go far enough. The claims, again, that he made, if not true, make him either a deranged madman or a diabolical deceiver. However, if the claims that he made are true, and they are, then he's exactly who he claimed to be. He's the Son of God. He's the eternal God who's come in the flesh for the salvation of souls. We sang about that this morning, right? And again, that's why John writes this book. 
He wants people to see that. He wants you to see that. He wants you to understand that, again, to have saving faith, it's crucial to have a proper biblical understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. You've got to understand correctly who he is and, again, why he's come. And, again, sadly, most people don't understand that. Sadly, most people don't understand that, and most people won't understand that. Most people don't understand or believe the truth concerning who Jesus is. So always when you bring the person of Jesus Christ up, there's always division. Some people believe, some people are indifferent, and other people just outright reject him. Although he speaks the truth. Although he's the truth incarnate. He's the word of God. Although he seeks only to glorify the Father. Although his works prove the fact that he's more than just a a mere man. He performs God's uh, miraculous works, still people reject him. And people are not willing to obey him. And people are not willing to obey him. Because they love their sin. John chapter 3 verse 19 says, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Men love their sin and they're not willing to give up control over their life. They're not willing to humble themselves under the word of God, under the word of Christ. They're blinded by their own sin, blinded by the person of Satan himself, to the reality of who Jesus is. Therefore, men, most men find themselves outside the realm of salvation. As I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, um, most men are unwilling to be saved because of those reasons. Most men are unwilling to be saved. Now, it's midweek during this feast, <clears throat> and, and Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and he's gone straight to the temple to teach. And the trend towards him is increasing rejection, increasing hostility. And that trend is going to grow even stronger. It's going to increase until the vast majority of the population are going to call for his death. And again, this progressive rejection of the most wonderful person who's ever walked this planet is the story of the Lord Jesus Christ's life while he was incarnate, while he was here in the flesh on the earth. And that increasing rejection and hostility exposes the profound sinfulness of the human heart. The wretchedness of fallen man rejecting God's gift of love and his only provision of salvation, that being his son, the dear Lord Jesus Christ. And what most men and women do not realize is that one day God's offer of mercy is going to come to an end. What most men and women fail to realize is that time is running out. That one day it will be too late to believe in a saving fashion upon the person of Jesus Christ. And then when that day comes, when mercy is removed, there remains nothing but wrath. When mercy is rejected, there will remain nothing but the awful truth of the wrath of God, the judgment of God against sin upon people's life because of their sin and because of the rejection of mercy through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 33 of this chapter, Jesus says, For a little while longer I am with you, and then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me, and you shall not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The one who's come from the Father is going to go back to the Father. The one who's come down from heaven is going to go back to heaven. But listen, heaven is not for everyone. Heaven is not for everyone. Jesus says, Where I am, you cannot come. Heaven is only for those who have repented of their sin and believed upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says to his enemies, to all unbelievers, there's going to come a day when it's going to be too late for you. 
There's going to, day is going to come when you're going to anxiously seek me and bitterly weep over your rejection of me, but then it's too late. You're not going to be able to find me. Just like in the days of Noah, when God shut the door to the ark, the opportunity for deliverance, the opportunity for rescue, for salvation was over. The judgment of the flood was upon the world, and only those who had previously sought refuge in the ark would be saved. And one day, when either death arrives for you, or the Lord Jesus comes in judgment, when he returns in judgment, it's going to be too late for you to repent. It's going to be too late for you to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. It's going to come a day when mercy ends, when pardon is removed, and the door of heaven is shut forever. For men who've lived their lives in unrepentant sin, for men who've rejected again God's offer of mercy, for men who've rejected the truth concerning mankind's only means of salvation, that being the person of Jesus Christ. J.C. Riles, as he um, often, he says this brilliantly. He says, hell is itself a truth known too late. God is unspeakably merciful, no doubt, but there is a limit even to God's mercy. Jesus says, you shall seek me and shall not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. That is a warning statement. That is a warning statement of immense importance to those who are confused over the reality of who Jesus really is. Jesus in John 8 and 24 said, I said, therefore, to you, you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Verse 25 So they were saying to him, well, who are you? Jesus says, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? The fact is I've come down from heaven. The fact is I'm eternal. The fact is that I've been sent by the Father into the world as the only Savior of the world. The fact that I'm the one who determines people's eternal destiny. The fact that I have the right to be honored and worshipped as the Father in heaven on an equal basis. The fact that I'm the one who gives living water. The fact that I am the bread of life. The fact that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me, etc. and so forth. What have I been saying? For unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. So I've told you all through the sermon series, the most important question that you're going to ever have to answer in your life is who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Not your friend, not your parents, not your neighbor, but who do you say Jesus is? That's the question. And the answer that you give to that question determines your eternal destiny. And unless you humble yourselves under the word of God and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says, you shall die in your sin. And that, my friend, is absolute truth. It's true truth. So be warned. The day of salvation is growing shorter. And one day God's mercy will come to an end. And unless you repent and believe the truth concerning the son, you will die in your sin. And again, many people, most people are confused over who Jesus is. And everyone's eternal destiny depends on having an accurate understanding of who he is. And the great truth is you don't have to be confused over who Jesus Christ is. The Father wants you to know that truth. In fact, the Bible says the Father desires that all men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He desires for people to know. The Bible says that God the Father has such a tremendous love for the world that he has given his only begotten Son not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But again, in order to do that, you have to repent. You have to believe. You have to humble yourself under the word of God. You have to come to Christ because Christ is your only hope. Acts 17, 31 says, The God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness 
through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul to the Thessalonians reports positively, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 9, how you turned from turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, <clears throat> this Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Come to Christ. Flee to Christ. He's your only hope. He's the only one who delivers men from the wrath to come. He's the only one who has the power, the ability to do that. Now, since it's been a couple weeks since we've been together in, in this study of John, go back to the top of the chapter of John. And let me just kind of read through most of it, just to kind of give us a, a flow and understanding until we can get to our uh, verses down here starting in 25. Chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews <coughs> were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea, for your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not at hand, uh, yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time is not yet fully come. Verse 9. Having said these things, he said, he, having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also himself went up publicly, or went up not publicly, as it were, but in secret. The Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? Verse 12, There was much grumbling among the multitude concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, starting in verse 14, remember, this is where we were the last time I was with you here in the pulpit. Um, the Lord Jesus is going to put forth five different lines of evidence to prove the reality of who he is. Five different lines of evidence um, for us to believe all the claims he made are true concerning him. And so this is pretty much the outline that I gave you a couple of weeks back, and I'll just give you nothing, not much more than just the headings. <clears throat> Why should we believe because of the source of his knowledge? Verse 14. But when it was now in the midst, but when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The Jews, therefore, were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Jesus answered them and said to them, My teaching or my doctrine is not mine, but he who sent me. I said that Jesus, when he teaches, he's not teaching human philosophy, he's not teaching human speculation or human ideas, but he's teaching divinely inspired spiritual truth. The source of his knowledge is from the Father, right? So everything he speaks, he speaks with divine authority in all that he says. That's why we should be him, believe in him. Uh, the second reason we should embrace the words of Christ and believe his claims because he has a desire to do the will of God, verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. I told you Jesus was really putting forth a principle to how you can know a certainty and with clarity uh, spiritual truth. And basically what Jesus is saying is that anybody who repents, anybody who repents of their sins, turns from their, their life of sin and rebellion and believes upon Christ, has a desire to obey the Father in heaven, you'll know that when Jesus speaks, he's speaking the truth. That's an axiomatic reality. You'll know. 
God will make sure, because it's God the Holy Spirit who awakens your dead spirit, and it's God the Holy Spirit who penned ultimately the text of the scripture, and it's God the Holy Spirit who wants you to know the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's his ministry to point us to the person of Jesus Christ. You'll know if you have a desire to do God's will. On the contrary, on the contrary, if you refuse to repent, if you refuse in your responsibility to do the will of God, because all men are under that responsibility to obey God because he is the supreme one, then the word of God is going to be hidden from you. You'll see and not be able to see. You'll hear and not be able to hear. If you're committed to disobedience, God will not open his word to you. The truth will not be known to you. We should embrace the words of Jesus Christ because he has a desire to obey the will of God, to do the will of God. The third reason I told you we should believe that Jesus and what Jesus says is the desire to seek the Father's glory, verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there's no unrighteousness in him. I told you false teachers are about one thing, themselves. False teachers glorify themselves. False teachers draw attention to themselves. False teachers seek the praise of men. When Jesus Christ came, all he did was draw attention to the Father. All he wanted to do was glorify the Father. All he was interested in was not praise of men. All he wanted was praise from the Father. He was all about the Father. He wanted to glorify the Father. At the end of verse 18, Christ says, He is true and there is no unrighteousness in him. As I said also that time or a couple weeks ago, that there's no false teachers, no false Christs hanging on a cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do when they're being executed. False teachers don't go that far. True teachers do. The true Christ did. The fourth reason, he says, to believe his claims is his declaration of man's sinfulness. Verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries it out? Why do you seek to kill me? Now the Jews, again, the religious people, the religious uh, leaders in their hypocrisy claimed that they were followers of the law of God, yet they violated the very law that they claimed to uphold because they had a desire, the religious leaders had a desire to murder an innocent man. Verse 20, the multitude answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? And again, I told you that claim is only a claim that could be made against the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, by those who are under satanic influence, again, uh, affirming man's sinfulness. So we should believe the person of Jesus Christ because he calls men who they are, sinners. The fifth and final reason that Christ puts forward here is why we should believe his claims are true is his righteous deeds, his works, his signs, the supernatural miracles that he performed, verse 21. Jesus answered and said to them, Did I not, I did one deed and you all marvel. I did one deed and you all marvel. Remember I told you that's referring back to chapter 5 when he healed the man there at the pool of Bethesda and the Jews were incensed. Here's a man who's been lame for many years, right? And and, and the Jews are incensed with him. Why? Because he healed on the Sabbath. Then he said that God was his father, therefore they wanted to murder him. It's very interesting. It should be noted that the Jewish religious leaders have no concern for the welfare of that man who Jesus healed. That man who had been laying there so many years lame. Their only concern was the perception that they had that Jesus had violated their Sabbath rules. To which Jesus, in turn, shows them just how perverted their thinking is. Verse 22. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision, 
not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? What he is saying is that their thinking is perverted. They wanted him murdered. They wanted to murder Jesus because Jesus comes and expressed God's goodness, kindness, and mercy to this man by healing him. And again, they think that that act violated their standard of proper behavior on the Sabbath, although they themselves were willing to violate the Sabbath and to carry out circumcision if it fell on the eighth day. So they're willing to set aside their rules to perform the surgery of circumcision, but they weren't willing to rejoice in God's goodness for the Lord Jesus Christ healing an entire man. He's pointing out their hypocrisy, the so-called religious leaders, more concerned with well-being of, or more concerned with rules and the well-being of a man, more concerned with rules than God putting his glory on display and God putting on display his marvelous kindness. And again, the miraculous power of the person of Jesus Christ, I've told you repeatedly, uh, is another evidence that he's no mere man because no one has ever, no one, even his enemies, ever denied the miraculous power of the person of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they were too numerous, too many of them, too undeniable. The power of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Again, Jesus is saying, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence, judge righteously. My words, my claims, my actions, the deeds, the miraculous power, his compassion, his authority, they all prove the reality that he's no mere man. So again, the question I left you with a couple of weeks ago is again the question of the hour, are you willing to be saved? You say, well, I don't know about that question. Is that a ridiculous question? No, it's not a ridiculous question because there's a whole lot of people who are not willing to be saved. That's reality. Because God in his kindness has made salvation it's about as easy as it can possibly be for the sinner who repents and places their faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You don't have to do anything. God's done everything through Christ. Are you willing to be saved? Are you willing to be saved? If so, you have to repent. You have to humble yourself. You have to believe upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to believe everything that he says to be true. Again, humbling yourself under the word of God, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you might have eternal life in his name. Now verse 25. Now note carefully some of the phrases here. I'll try to draw some emphasis to them. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is, not this, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Now remember just a few verses earlier, verse 19, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill, to, uh, seek to kill me? Verse 20, the multitude answered. You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? So unlike the multitude, unlike the pilgrims who've come from all over the region to Jerusalem to visit the city in verse 20, these people here in verse 25, the people of Jerusalem, they seemingly living in the town with the religious leaders are very well aware of the murderous intents of these religious leaders towards the person of Jesus. Is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? Uh, And the Greek construction in the sentence would expect an affirmative answer. Yes, this is the one. Now again, it's midweek. Jesus has come to the feast. He's walked right into the temple. He's assumed a position of authority in his teaching. Along the way, he's had numerous run-ins with the religious leaders of Israel, and he has condemned them for their hypocrisy on several occasions, and he has boldly cleansed the temple. Remember, that's how he began his earthly ministry back in chapter 2. Threw everybody out. 
So there's much confusion, discussion, discord with the person of Jesus. There's much discussion amongst the multitude concerning who he is. Many, however, still have a favorable impression concerning him at this point. This group here in verse 25, the people of Jerusalem, are somewhat amazed and confused over the apparent lack of response by the religious leaders towards Jesus' public teaching. Because the Lord is very open, he's very fearless in his teaching in the temple. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Verse 26, and look, he is speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. That the word publicly means freely. He's speaking with unreserved speech, openly, frankly, without concealment, fearlessly, confidently, courageously, boldly. In fact, the New King James says, look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Now, in contrast, the religious leaders are sitting there in silence. The religious leaders are sitting in silence, and Jesus is authoritatively proclaiming the truth. He's boldly proclaiming the truth of the law of sin, of judgment to come, uh, of righteousness, forgiveness of sin, mercy, grace, the kingdom, etc. Perhaps, again, he's claiming to be the Son of God who's come down from heaven, and the religious leaders aren't stopping him. It's a remarkable thing in the eyes of the people. Because the people knew the hearts of the religious leaders, and they knew their hatred of the person of Jesus and their desire to kill him. So seeing the Lord speaking so boldly and openly and publicly, and yet no effort is being made by the religious leaders to apprehend him or to stop his teaching, therefore, immediately they ask the question that follows here in verse 26. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? BSV says, can it be that the authorities really know this is the Christ? I mean, they're allowing him to teach publicly. He's boldly proclaiming the truth. Have the religious leaders changed their mind concerning him? That's the question that the people of Jerusalem are asking. The, the religious leaders, they're, again, they're not arresting him. Ha, have they somehow perhaps received additional information about Jesus? Ha, have they decided that perhaps he is the Messiah? The religious, or the, the people of Jerusalem seem to be more concerned with the ideas and the opinions of what the religious leaders think rather than just themselves facing the facts concerning the person of Jesus himself. But trying to hide behind the religious leader's opinion of Jesus really shows, again, they have no desire on their own to discover the truth for themselves. They really have no personal desire, no personal interest to know whether or not Jesus is the Christ and preaching the truth of God. If your eternal destiny was dependent upon your understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, and you get it wrong, and you're going to spend eternity in hell forever, do you really care what somebody else's opinion about the person of Jesus Christ is? If your eternal destiny depends upon your understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, it's pretty irrelevant what other people's opinion is of the person of Jesus Christ. You want to know for yourself, eh, right? Most people don't. Most people could care less. These people seemingly could care less. They have no desire to discover the truth for themselves. But again, every individual is going to have to make that evaluation for themselves of who Jesus Christ really is. So John is saying, well, you know, there's really no difference between the people of Jerusalem and the religious leaders. 
The people of Jerusalem don't believe upon him any more than the religious Jews did. That's why the Bible says there's no difference. All have sinned and all come short of the glory of God. The common people were no different than the religious leaders, the religious rulers. And again, people all over the world are in the same category. All people are and have been exposed to the person of Jesus Christ. But again, human nature being what it is, is the same worldwide. I told you previously, there's nothing new, nothing sophisticated, nothing modern about opposition to Christ. It's been happening since the first century. And there's nothing but the distinguishing grace of God that makes one receptive to the truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ. John 6 and 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? And immediately, the people here of Jerusalem dismiss that idea, verse 27. Listen. However, we know where this man is from. We know where this man is from, but wherever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. So immediately, the crowd rejects the possibility that Jesus might be the Messiah. And part of their argument is based on a combination of misinformation, misinterpretation of Scripture, and popular legend, which are a triple deadly combination. Misinformation, misinterpretation of Scripture, popular legend. Now the Jews believed that when Messiah showed up, he would suddenly appear unannounced in a dramatic fashion, and no one would know where he came from. Pop into the room, kind of an idea. We know where this man is from. We know his history. We know where he's from. We know he's the carpenter's son, Mary and uh, uh, his mother is Mary and his brother, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, as it says in Matthew uh, thirteen fifty five. We know his family. He can't be the Messiah. He's just a man. We know this man and we know where he's from. Now, mistaken opinion at the time was that Jesus was from Nazareth in Galilee. Verse 41 of chapter 7 says, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Because the scripture says Messiah is going to be a descendant of David from, from Bethlehem, the, the village of David, as it says in Micah 5 and 2. Verse 27 continues, but wherever, Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. Uh, again, it's true that Jesus spent an amazing amount of time in, in Nazareth, but the truth is he was born in Bethlehem, not Nazareth. The truth is, Jesus actually fulfills Old Testament prophecy concerning the birthplace of the Messiah. And the truth is, most of the people of Jerusalem could have found out that truth if they'd taken the time to do so, to inquire the history of the Lord's life on earth. Why? Because this nation kept strict pedigrees. They were into all this pedigrees. They were into... Uh, genealogies. They were into understanding who is the father of who and who is the father of who, right? They kept a strict ledger of all that information. All they had to do was go and check out the genealogical record in the temple if they wanted to know the truth. And that's a big if. If the Jews had honestly desired to find out the truth, the people of Jerusalem, they could have found out that both his mother and his father's line came from David, both lines. That again, he was born in Bethlehem, that he was the son of David. They didn't do that. Because again, they, like many people, aren't interested in the truth. What they were doing is they were looking for a reason to justify their rejection of him. Because he didn't fit their pattern. 
he didn't fit the way they thought or what they thought the Messiah would be like when he arrived. Again, there's this, there was this kind of a mystical idea of Messiah that he would suddenly, miraculously, supernaturally appear. He would come into the temple. One writer puts it like this, something like a bolt out of heaven. Just zap, here he is, and everybody would know, oh, that's him. He's the Messiah. It's interesting that the people does, don't take the time to check out the truth concerning the person of Jesus and his origin, his lineage, which again they could have done in the temple. And again, it's also true that the religious leaders of the time don't do that, even though they know the truth. They know because the chief priests and the scribes knew that the Messiah was going to come born from Bethlehem, and they reported that to King Herod back in uh, Matthew chapter 2 when he arrived from the east, or the Magi came from the east. It's not a, it's not a um, hidden secret. Again, the religious leaders and the people are all the same. They're just looking for justification for their rejection of the person of Jesus Christ because they're not interested in the truth. Nothing has changed in human nature. Most people aren't interested in the truth. You come here, I don't know if it's your first week or your second week or your 100th week, you come here, you're going to hear the truth. You're going to hear the truth in Sunday school. You're going to hear the truth from this pulpit, whoever's behind this pulpit. You're going to hear the truth in every single Bible study we have. You're going to hear the truth. If you want something other than the truth, I would encourage you, flee, don't come back here, because we only deal with the truth. We're not interested in opinion. We're not interested in how it makes you feel. We're interested in the truth, because it's the truth that sets us free. We want to know the truth, and Jesus is the person of the truth. The truth is out there for everybody to know. And again, people aren't interested in the truth, and the, people, the reason people aren't interested in the truth <coughs> is, as it says in John 3 and 19, this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world. Men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. If you're going to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, listen. If you're going to believe that, if you're going to believe that Jesus is the Savior, you're going to have to believe that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And most people won't do that. Because they love their sin. They hate righteousness. They hate the words of Christ. I've been telling you, it's all about the words of Christ, right? And he said a lot of things. He got people really rankled up here, really upset. If you were to pick one phrase that probably typifies, probably is the tip of the things that Jesus said that got people so upset with him, Matthew 18, 11 would be a good place to look. It says, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. And prideful man does not want to believe he's lost. Prideful man thinks he can save himself. I'll make up my own religious system. I'll do these works. I'll do this thing or that thing. You know what? If we can just get the right people in politics in place, if we can just get the right legislation, we can work out all of our problems. How's it been going the last 2,000 years since Jesus left? How's it going? How is man dealing with all of his issues and problems? <clears throat> the psalmist says in Psalm 2, you need to do homage to the sun. You need to worship the sun. All the nations are in an uproar, devising vain things against God's anointed. <clears throat> My wife and I were talking about this yesterday as we were driving back. <clears throat> Excuse me. When is the last time you heard anybody call anybody in our culture, anybody as a leader in our government, to repentance and righteousness and holiness. Whoever that person is, I'll vote for him, because I have not heard anybody say that. We just sin 
and put our depravity on display, thinking it's with impunity that we can just do whatever we, whatever we want, that there is no judge. There is a judge, let me tell you. We deal in truth around here. <clears throat> and if you're going to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, you're going to have to humble yourself and believe that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. But what unrighteous men do is they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They reject the truth. They reject God's offer of mercy. They reject salvation that, again, is found only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And I said to this to you numerous times, what you're seeing is you're seeing the active wrath of abandonment in this culture and around the world. You're seeing God taking his restraining hand off giving men over to the depravity of their mind. And the reason you think they keep doubling down on stupid is because they keep doubling down on stupid because they have depraved minds, minds that don't work properly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if we go to the next step, the fool has said there's no God. There's no wisdom without an acknowledgement of the, of, of the person of God himself, right? Everything that men say apart from God is ultimately foolishness. Men love their sin. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Therefore, some of the people were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Now, where in the world would they even come up with that possible suggestion? Well, drop down to verse 31. Many of the multitude believed in him that they were saying, and they were saying, when the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has Will he? Again, the person of Jesus Christ is not only his words, his miraculous display of power that again proves the reality that he's no mere man. But again, it's their pride, their indolence, their self-righteousness that caused the people not to receive the abundant evidence which the Lord gave concerning the Messiah and the fact that he is the Christ and he gave that evidence repeatedly. When the Christ shall come, he's not going to perform more miraculous acts than this man. The rulers, they don't really believe that this is the Christ, do they? And again, what was true then is true. Now nothing has changed. The heart of unbelieving man doesn't want to know the truth, doesn't want to believe the truth. Again, truth is readily available. God, in his immense kindness, has given to us his word that's freely available in a language that we can understand and don't need an interpreter for the Holy Spirit is his own interpreter. If men want to know the truth, if men would just take up the Bible and read, they would know all the truth they need to know concerning the person of Jesus Christ and salvation. Take up the Gospels, read upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is, read what the apostles, how the apostles affirm the fact of who he is. Read of the tremendous love again that God the Father has for our world to send his only beloved son into the world as a substitute for sinners. That truth is freely available for anyone who wants it. Confusion doesn't need to be the issue of the day if you want to know the truth because it's readily available. God's not hiding the truth from anybody. God's putting his truth on full display. But again, most people don't want the truth. I've told you this numerous times through this study that the unbelief really is irrational in light of the evidence. Because unbelief really has nothing to do with evidence. Unbelief has nothing to do with intellectual ability or social class, class because unbelief is found across the board, as it were, in every class and among every intellectual ability or lack thereof. 
just as on the other side, true belief also is found across the board, as it were, in every class and among every intellectual ability. Unbelief has nothing to do with evidence. Unbelief has nothing to do with anything other than the hardness of a man's heart and his refusal to repent because he loves his own sin and he refuses to bow his knee to the person of Christ. And unbelief is, uh, is open, uh, active, objective evidence, not only of the hardness of a man's heart, but it's evidence of the active work of Satan in the life of that unbeliever. Because it's Satan who's the ultimate deceiver, who is the one who intentionally hides the glory of Christ from the unbeliever. So if you're an unbeliever, either in the room today or in the room behind me or listening to me on the, on, on the live stream, and you're hiding behind your so-called great intellect, that's why you're refusing Christ and refusing the gospel. The reality is, the truth is, you're a fool. And not only are you a fool, but you're perishing, and you're about to face the wrath of God. You're under demonic, satanic control. 2 Corinthians 4 and 3, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, uh, who is the image of God. That's the truth. Active evidence of satanic, demonic control and influence for those who, who are perishing. Unbelief, again, is irrational in light of the truth. Unbelief is, is irrational in light of the fact that unbelief brings pain and sorrow and remorse and eternal hell. Un unbelief has brought the curse upon all of humanity. Un unbelief brings the wrath of God upon people individually, personally. And again, unbelief is completely irrational in, in light of the fact that God desires to save you and not curse you. That God desires that you come to acknowledge the truth and be saved. Yet unbelief in its irrationality chooses sin <clears throat> and Satan and hell and agony and eternal punishment. Where belief upon Christ offers you eternal life, hope, joy, happiness, newness of life, eternal life in time, complete change of life in time the moment you believe. But these people here, they'd already made up their mind. Again, verse 27, they'd already made up their mind. We know, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one may knows where he's from. Right? No one will know where he's from. So the crowds have made up their mind. They've rejected the truth. Again, not because the truth wasn't available to them, but, but they hate the truth. Men hate the truth. They hate the fact that they're sinners in need of a Savior. Verse 28, <clears throat> Jesus therefore cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and where I am from. I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple. The idea behind the word is that he's yelling. He's yelling. The word literally means to croak. It's a cry of a raven. He's speaking with a loud voice. Again, he is yelling, and I think he's yelling to be heard over unbelief. Jesus cried out in the temple, again, yelling at the top of his lungs, as it were, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I'm from. Now, the issue comes is how do you interpret that statement? You both know me and where I am from. Uh, especially when just a few verses later in chapter 8, verse 19, Jesus says, you neither know me nor my father. Now, many <coughs> uh, commentators take it as a bit of an irony, and that's probably where to take it. Jesus is speaking ironically. So you know me? Do you? Question mark. 
You know where I'm from? Really? That's what you think. The truth is you don't know anything about me. That's probably the way to take it. You both know me and know where I'm from. Where I'm from. Again, you know me in a superficial fashion. You think you know me. You think you know where I'm from. You know my family according to the flesh. I got that, but you don't know me. That's evidenced by the fact that you don't know God. You both know me and know where I'm from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. So again, he's made another claim that he's from the Father in heaven, and he makes the most astonishing accusation uh, against the Jewish people. You don't know. You don't know him. Again, the people of Israel took great pride as the people of God, uh, that they knew God. They thought they knew God. But Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't know me, you don't know God. You don't know the Father. John 8, 19, you know neither me nor my Father. You think you do. You think I'm just a mere man, that I came from Nazareth. You've seen my deeds, you've heard my words. You have absolutely, however, no idea who I am or where I've really come from. You have no idea who sent me. You have no knowledge of that one. That's reality. You have no understanding. You both know me and know where I'm from. You've, I have not come from myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Verse 29, I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. Again, the nation of Israel is woefully ignorant to the very God they claim to know and serve. Just like Paul wrote about them in Romans chapter 10. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance to knowledge. And again, that's the way it is. That's the reality today. Sadly, there are many people in that same kind of category. They think they know God. They think they know about Jesus. They think they know who Jesus is. They think they know the way of salvation. They know a few stories about Jesus. And again, most people are pretty convinced that they're pretty good people, that they do more good things than bad things. In the end, God will accept them in. But that's not the truth. More misinformation, more misinterpretation of Scripture, more popular legend for those who are perishing. If it's not the truth, it's a lie. And the devil's all about lies. The devil's all about promote, promoting lies. He's the father of, of lies. People refuse the truth because they love their sin. Therefore, they're left with lies. People refuse the truth because they don't want to listen to the truth. They don't want to listen to the word of God. They don't want to listen to the eternal father who has sent his son to save people in the world. Therefore, they are held captive, still held captive by the lies of Satan himself. These people think they know, but Jesus says, you don't know the bit, the least bit about me. I've not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. You do not know. I know him for I'm from him. Again, a little bit further in the next chapter, in chapter 8, Jesus says, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, then you'd know my Father. Verse 43 of that chapter says, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You're of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. as a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand to the truth. There's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's the liar, the father of lies. But I speak the truth, and you don't believe me. When you reject biblical truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ, again, you're not only giving active evidence of satanic influence in your life, you're giving active evidence to your true nature. That not only you reject the truth, you can't even understand the truth, because your father, the devil, is a liar. You can't hear the word of truth that sets Ben free. You can't hear the word of God, because your father won't allow you to. You're showing your nature. So again, these proud individuals thought they knew the truth. They thought they knew who Jesus really was. Yet they reject him as the Messiah. 
They reject him as the Messiah, and they turn, in turn place their souls in eternal peril, again, just like many people do today. Perhaps some of you who are listening to me this morning. Again, many people claim to know Jesus. Many people claim to know some things about Jesus. But unless you repent and place your faith solely upon him alone, you don't know him. And you don't know the Father of the God who sent him. And again, giving active evidence of the fact that not only you're under the wrath of God, but you're being lied to by the devil himself. Under the active wrath of a holy God who could exact payment upon your soul at any moment. Most people who don't believe the truth about Jesus don't care. Most people who don't know the truth about Jesus are so deceived they don't even understand the reality of the peril that they're under. The book of James says that the demons believe and at least they're smart enough to shake, to physically tremble because they know the torment that is waiting them for their rebellion against the Most High God. The sad truth is most people in the world are stupidly different to the matters of eternal life and the matters of their own soul. Caught up with anything and everything that's going on in this world. And whatever your view is of the virus, whatever your view is on vaccinations, whatever your view is on politics and who's in charge, I guarantee you that's not going to matter one whit, one second after you take your last breath. And I don't know if you've noticed, if you follow the news, if there's something important that happens, there's an information dump on Friday because everybody knows that people will forget over the weekend, and then by Monday there's some other thing that takes you off a different place on a different rabbit trail, chasing some other kind of demon, so to speak, down the road on some other issue. I've read the end of the book, Jesus Wins, Amen. Read the end of the book. It says Jesus wins. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Attend to the issues at hand, the most pressing issues. Again, what are you going to do with the person of Jesus Christ? Because one day, as I said previously, the day of grace is going to come to an end. And what you do with the person of Jesus Christ determines your eternal destiny. My friends, that's the truth. That's the true truth. Now listen. Whether you believe that's true truth is completely irrelevant. I just told you true truth. What you do with the person of Jesus Christ determines your eternal destiny. That's true truth. Just like the man who says he doesn't believe in the doesn't believe in the truth of gravity, he opens wide the door of the plane at thirty thousand feet, he jumps out and screams, I don't believe in gravity. Very soon, I guarantee you, very soon truth is going to make an impact upon that person. And very soon, the day of grace is going to come to an end, and the truth of the Word of God and the salvation that He offers for those who uh, repent and believe is going to be withdrawn, and the truth is going to make an impact. That's why God in His kindness allows you to hear the true truth, because He wants people to know the truth. He says, look, Jesus says, look, I've not come for myself, but He who sent me, and He's true. You don't know me. I know Him, verse 29, because I'm from Him. He sent me. Again, He keeps repeating this phrase, and, and that just speaks to the reality that he's sent by God. If he's been sent by God, he's eternal. He's the one who lived in eternity past. That's why he can come and make a statement, before Abraham was, I am. Because that's truth. 
To have been sent by God the Father means that Jesus operates under the full authority of the Father, as I said earlier. Again, he teaches not of his own teaching. He teaches from the one who sent him. He speaks exactly what the Father sent him to speak. To reject the words of Christ is to reject the words of the eternal Father who sent him. To be sent by the Father means that Jesus is under the providential protection of God himself, verse 30. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. Now, I wish I had more time to develop this, but we don't have time. But very briefly, this concept of the hour, Jesus' hour. You saw it back in chapter 2, verse 4. It's here in verse 30. It occurs in chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 12, verse 23, verse 27, 13, chapter chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1. It's, it's a reference to the cross, the hour of Christ, the cross. The appointment that Christ has with the cross. That's the specific reason why he has come into the earth. The religious leaders hate him. They want to seize him. They want to kill him. Uh, you see that again back in chapter 5, verse 18, chapter 7, verse 1. Some people have said he has a demon. Some people say he's a deceiver. The crowd's confused over the fact that Jesus is teaching in the temple and the religious leaders haven't done anything about it. So to finally, they decide they're going to step in. Again, verse 30, they were seeking, therefore, to seize him, yet no man laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The religious leaders want to shut him up, but they can't. They want him dead, but they can't pull it off. The truth is they can't touch him. No man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So what Jesus, or what John is saying is that Jesus is under the providential care and protection of God. What's going on here is that it's a picture of the <coughs> sovereign hand of God at work controlling everything that is happening, uh, happening uh, not only in the universe, but everything that is happening in the life of Jesus Christ while he is incarnate. Redemptive history was planned in eternity past, and everything is going to be executed in time. Every aspect of that truth, every, every aspect of that plan is under the divine, sovereign protection and control of God himself. Now, there is going to come an, a day or an, an hour when, when, when Christ will be taken by his captors, but not yet. His hour had not yet come. And when his enemies do come, and they come against Christ, they do so only by God's permission. It was God the Father's will to please to him to let it be done at that appointed time. <clears throat> Again, J.C. Ryle says, Our Lord did not fall into his enemies' hands through inability to escape, but his hour had come when he voluntarily undertook to die as the substitute. That's why he came. So the religious leaders want him dead. They want to kill him here and now, but they can't. Arthur Pink sets, says this, he said, This verse sets forth the truth which should be of great comfort to God's people, and indeed it is so when received by unquestioning faith. We find here a striking example of the restraining hand of God upon his enemies. Their purpose <coughs> was to apprehend Christ. They sought to take him, and not, the, not a hand was laid upon him. They thirsted for his blood. They were determined to kill him, yet an invisible restraint from above, by an invisible restraint from above, they were powerless to do so. That's tremendous. Because again, I just said it pretty, just a few seconds ago that, that that truth is true truth and that truth applies even to our own lives. God is in control. There's not a hair on your head that can be touched without God's permission because everything is under the immediate control of God himself. Ryle again, it says, this doctrine before us lets us know in full comfort that as God's people, nothing can hurt them except until God permits 
we are all immortal till our work is done to realize that nothing happens in this world except by the eternal counsel of our Father and according to his eternal plans is one grand secret of living a calm, peaceful, and contented life. So my encouragement to you pastorally is it's time for us to believe the truth we say we believe in. <clears throat> we need to believe these truths. We need to encourage each other with these truths. The truth is, there's absolutely nothing out of control in this world of chaos except those who are under the king of chaos, those who don't know Christ. We who have repented and placed our faith in the Savior, we who are sons of the Father, are under God's sovereign control and protection. We don't live in chaos. We don't live in fear. We live in the light of the certainty of God's love for us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom He gave for us. Amen? We need to start believing the truth we say we believe. Start living according to the truth we say we believe. And how many times over and over so far, even in our studies so far uh, in, in this book of John, has Jesus said something along the lines of, this is the will of him who sent me, that all he's given to me I lose nothing and raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who belows, beholds the Son and believes in him I may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Last day. John 10 and 28, I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And again, the Father through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ has guaranteed, promised us eternal life. And we say we believe that. We say we, we, we believe that promise, that we're never going to perish, that nothing can separate us from the, from the love of the Father, the love of the Son. Nothing can snatch us out of the Father's, uh, out of Christ's hands. And if God has provided for us the, the greater and we believe that, can't we also trust him for the lesser? You say, what do you mean? Well, if God has taken our eternal destiny and made it sure through Christ, the greater... Can we not, should we not, also trust him for the lesser, our life and time, that he has that under control also, because he's the sovereign controller of the universe. One of the most discouraging things, and I mean this with utmost kindness, one of the most discouraging things for me to witness in the pandemic, quote-unquote, is Christians being fearful. What, what do we have to fear? If we die from the coronavirus, from a car accident or from cancer, does it matter? Absent from the body, present with the Lord, is appointed unto man once to die, then comes judgment. There's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no reason for us to fear. There's no reason to get sucked into the vortex of the black hole of a godless, deceived, deviant world that is all around us. One of the great things of the last couple days, we've been working we back, I don't know if I said this already, back to Little Rock and worked some more. We've been unplugged. There was no internet in the house. Too busy, too tired to look at anything on my phone. I don't know what's going on in the world. And guess what? The last couple days have been physically exhausting, but mentally peaceful. And as worked up as you are over whatever happened in the world the last week, just wait till Monday. The world will have a whole other agenda for you to get worked up over again. Tune out. Turn it off. 
I mean, I do understand you got to be somewhat aware of what's going on, but not. this is not our home. God, through Christ, is taking care of our eternal destiny. He can take care of our time. Right? They were seeking to seize him, and no man laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. Right? The people of Jerusalem rejected, the religious leaders have rejected him, they want him killed. Verse 31 says, but many of the multitude believed in him. Some are starting to think maybe he is the Christ. They were saying, when the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Now, John doesn't tell us the quality of the belief. Some commentators say, well, since John doesn't say anything, you've got to take it face value. It's genuine. <clears throat> I don't know if I'd go there. I think it's more like the kind of belief we saw back in chapter 2. People believe because of the signs that Jesus was doing. Jesus says, John says in that section that Jesus on his part wasn't entrusting to their belief. He wasn't believing their belief. I, I, I was telling my wife yesterday as we were driving, no, nobody gets saved because of signs and wonders. Nobody gets saved because of signs and wonders. People get saved because they see that they're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And they repent and they run to Christ. They don't get saved by the spectacular. And I think you probably take these people and put them in the category of temporary shallow belief. You go, well, how do you get that? Because I, I just read what it says. They were saying, when the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has will he. So again, they acknowledge his miraculous power, which everybody did. I told you that earlier, even his enemies. But they didn't say, this is the Christ. This Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. When the Christ shall come. They, they didn't give the same kind of public testimony that Peter gave on behalf of the other apostles back in John 6 and 69. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So whatever level of belief is going on here, for the most part, it's probably not salvific. The religious leaders are starting to become concerned, however. People in the crowd that are starting to float the idea that Jesus might be the Messiah based on his miraculous power, verse 32. The priests heard the multitudes muttering these things about him. Chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Multitudes muttering, they're murmuring, they're confused. The religious leaders are getting upset, alarmed. So much so, we don't have time to go into this one either, but so much so you've got two arch rivals, two theological arch rivals, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They decided to come together, those who have been historically opposed to each other, opposite ends of the theological spectrum. As much as they hate each other, they hate Christ more, they band together in an effort to do away with him. The Pharisees heard the multitudes muttering about these things. The chief priests, which would have come from the Sadducees, and the Pharisees sent officers. They sent temple guards, which were somewhat like a police force, to maintain order in the temple to seize him. A few more verses in the next chapter, we're going to see that these guys go. Some of them wanted to seize them. They weren't able to lay hands on him. Or in chapter 7, verse 44, the officers came to the chief priests and said, why didn't you bring him? The officers answered, we never heard a man speak like this guy speaks. Religious leaders say, you've not been deceived also, led astray, right? So there's confusion. Jesus, verse 33, says, therefore a little while longer I'm with you, then I go to him who sent me. Again, we're six months from the next Passover, the spring where Christ will be crucified. 
Then he'll rise from the dead. He'll ascend to the Father to heaven. So his days on earth are drawing to a close. Verse 34, again, is a solemn warning. You shall seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Again, those who reject Christ will never be able to go where Christ is currently in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So again, one day it's going to be too late for you. Too late to make a decision concerning the person of Jesus. One day the door of heaven is going to be permanently shut and those who have rejected him are going to be permanently locked down. One writer says, Hell is after all itself. Truth discovered too late. Jesus makes a penetrating, powerful statement. Two sides to it. You will seek me and not find me, which says that sinners will seek him and not be able to find him. And part of hell is suffering for sin. Hell is also resentment. Hell is also unrelieved bitterness under the destructive hand of God. But hell is also eternal regret without remedy, everlasting remorse without hope. That's why he says there is weeping and gnashing and wailing of teeth tormenting in darkness. You will seek me, but you'll not find me. The writer says hell is not where Christ is forgiven, forgotten. Hell is not where Christ is forgotten. Hell is where Christ is not available. Where I am, you cannot come. Again, the door of heaven is going to be shut because heaven's not for everyone. What do you do with the person of Jesus Christ? That's the question. Hell's going to be full of sinners. Sinners who've trusted their own goodness, their own righteousness. Sinners who have rejected God's offer and mercy. Through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, mankind's only substitute. And you know what about heaven? Heaven's going to be full of sinners also. Heaven's going to be full of sinners who've humbled themselves. Sinners who've seen their sin, their need of a Savior. Sinners who have repented and turned away from their sin and placed their hope, their faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Verse 35, the Jews therefore said to one another, where does this man indeed intend to go that we shall not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks that he might teach the Greeks, is he? Where does this man intend to go? It's just nothing more than the mocking, sick words of faithless fools who are blaspheming the Son of God, willfully rejecting him, stupidly ignorant. Where does this man go? I tell you what, those words are going to haunt them for all of eternity. Verse 36, what is this statement that he said, you will seek me and not find me where I am, you cannot come? You know what it is? It is a warning. Whether you reject Christ, whether you're confused about his identity, you reject him, you hate him because he's exposed your sin, unless you believe that he is the Christ, unless you believe that he is the son of the living God, unless you humble yourself, unless you repent and place your faith in him and him alone, you will die in your sin and you will be shut out of heaven forever. And one day when you take your last breath, it will be too late for you to make a decision salvifically concerning the identity of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will have sealed your eternal destiny. And the Bible says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for your word that you are not a God of confusion.
But that you're a God of all truth, and you're a God that desires that men would know the truth, that they would be saved, come to knowledge of the truth, after repentance and faith in the Savior, and that they might come salvifically, having their sins forgiven by Christ. We thank you for that truth. I pray you take your word and use it in the hearts and the minds of all who have listened this morning. We who know you, we love you, we praise you. For those who have not yet repented, may this be the day of repentance, we pray in Christ's name.